Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories, and I'm talking to Samir Chedo, the co-founder and the CEO of Gowabi. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Michael. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing super. Look, first of all, I wanted to thank you for being so flexible. <laughs> we were supposed <laughs> to do this, as you know, but let's just let everybody else know we were supposed to do this earlier, but because... I was a little bit busy, and one of my friend's planes was delayed a few hours. Um, it was just easier for me to do this later, so I really appreciate your flexibility. No worries, no worries. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you. Where, where are you from originally? So I'm, I'm born and raised in Sweden. That's what I thought. Uh, but uh, my, my parents are coming from Iraq, okay. so Arabic uh, background. Fair enough. And you seem to have, like, been schooled in a few different places. I forgot that you went to Ritsumekan. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I studied in, in Sweden and um, went for abroad, semester abroad in, in, uh, in Japan. Right. Uh, like uh, when I was very, very young, I mean, around 19 years old. Um, so yeah, I went to Ritsumekan in, in uh, it's a small little city in, uh, called Beppu. It's like very famous for onsen. Onsen. <laughs> onsen paradise. But it's interesting. It's weird, actually. So I've driven into Beppu, actually, um, from Fukuoka or Hakata, right? And I just, I didn't know, maybe at the time that I did it, which was probably like 20-something years ago, maybe the Ritsumekan APEC wasn't there. Maybe it was, and I just didn't know. But Beppu is like very famous and very traditional, like you said, onsen town. Yes, so, it's correct. No, so actually the, the university is hidden on, I mean, it's, it's in the mountains, so you cannot see it if you're just driving in the city. Right. Uh, it's like 30 minutes away, and uh, it's just, just university, basically. So why, why would you go to Ritsumekan? So you're in Sweden getting your university education. What was it about Ritsumekan or just being in Japan that made you want to go there? I actually, so I was very comfortable living in Sweden. Um, I wanted to to see something like completely opposite uh, of what we have in in the Western culture. Um, so many people went to like Australia and, and more like common places. So I decided to to f- try to find something more or less black and white uh, compared to Sweden uh, in terms of culture and everything like this. So Japan was one of my choices, and uh, and luckily. I mean, my first choice, and, and I managed to end up in in a small, small little city in Japan, which was very, very cool. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. I mean, we might be like 20-something years apart in age, but I think that was the exact same thought process I had when I decided to study in Japan as well. So most of my um, peers at the time had, you know, did what you did. They went, I mean, did what you didn't do, and they went and did the easy thing, right? They went to exactly. some other sort of English-speaking country or Romance-language-speaking country, right? Like, it would have been very easy for you to do study abroad in France or in Italy, yeah. but it would have been boring, I think. I think so. And I did the same thing, too. I just went to the other side of the planet and said, I wonder what's going to happen here. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first culture shock is is, uh, is pretty huge, actually, especially when you're... Uh, it's experience for life, I would say. Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting. I, I think there's a mentality of an entrepreneur that your entire life is about taking risks that other people won't take. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Anyways, so, I mean, go ahead. Uh, after that, uh, so I mean, so I, I went for, for one year, right? So my, my first half year was in Japan, and then 
uh, I, I found the, the more comfortable way and then I went for a half year in London. So it was like <laughs> black and white. So I, I really wanted to compare them both, you know. Right. So this is Westminster, I presume, right? Yes, exactly. exactly. Just, so that was like very similar to Sweden, more or less. It must have been. And what were yeah. the what were the months? Because, you know, seasons matter. There are four seasons in Japan and there are... I'd probably say three seasons in London. <laughs> the Londoners would probably argue with me. Um, but, you know, it just doesn't... Like, summer in Japan can get really, really hot, particularly in, in Kyushu, right? And um, I'm wondering when you were there. Were you there in the summer and fall, and then you were in London for the... What, for the half of the fall and the rest of the winter? Yeah, yes. So, actually, yeah, in, uh, I went to Japan in, uh, yeah, after, just after the summer. Right. So it was very, very humid uh, till New Year's. Okay. Uh, and then after that, I went straight to London. So wow. I spent till, till summer. I spent my summer break in London and then I went back to Sweden, basically. Got it. So when you finished your schooling, wh- where did you go? Like, what, what made you come back to like sort of the main part of Asia, right? I mean, at some point you ended up working at Ensogo and, and, and living in Thailand a little bit maybe or just in Singapore, was it? So I actually, so after my, my studies, uh, I went for another degree in, in Sweden. Uh, so I, I continued studying. So I've been studying for six years, okay. uh, graduating for, from two masters, basically. Good for you. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had time in Sweden, so, so that, that ended up like that. <laughs> but I think that that's the best decision because um, after, after studying in abroad, uh, in 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 London and and in Japan, I really saw a different world, right? From from what you have in Sweden, uh, it's completely different. And it's a new planet, basically. So um, when I decided to continue my studies, uh, I wanted to go more into an international program uh, where I can find job abroad. Uh, so I went for for studies in another city in Sweden, and. Um, Basically went for, uh, during six months, I ended up in, uh, I was looking for opportunities in Southeast Asia. And that was my main goal. Why? Because I, I noticed really Southeast Asia is growing. It's a place I really wanted to be. And this was 2012. Okay, interesting. Uh, yes. So, and then just after, just at that time, uh, the perfect timing was with uh, Lazada. They just, uh, Rocket Internet just opened up in Southeast Asia. Uh, so I went for my, my first time in, in Asia, in Southeast Asia to Philippines um, for, for a few months and I really saw a different world and I mean it got me hooked more or less. Uh, and then after that I went for uh, another, I mean uh, they moved me to Indonesia for also Rock, uh, Rocket Internet Lazada. Uh, and then I went back to Sweden to finish my degree, and I realized, okay, I need to go back. I mean, this is this is the place I want to be at. Uh, so yeah, then they, then I ended up in in Singapore. Uh, I didn't go back to Lazada. I, I went back. I went to uh, Ensogo at that time. Can I uh, can I interrupt yes. you for a second? I'm really curious. In 2012, the whole perception of you know rocket internet was very different, I think, than it is today. And I'm just curious what it was like back then. It, it's not, you know, from a year perspective, it's not that far away. But boy, it just culturally, it just feels really far away. Back then, you know, rockets seemed to be dominating the emerging market space, particularly in the startup world. Um, mm. The successes that they had had recently, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011, just made it seem like they were just going to run roughshod over the region. I just wonder what, it, what was the morale or what was the atti- sort of attitude like internally there at the time? And particularly for you, because you were, you know, that was your first 
kind of work experience, right? Yes, yes. No, it was it was very interesting because um, I mean they they hired a lot of great, talented, smart, young young uh, young people basically from like the top schools around uh, Europe. Mm. So everyone came with more or less the same mentality, right? right. Uh, they are hungry, they are eager to learn, and they really fight. Uh, so this was really the mentality and. And the people there, I mean, I, I'm in contact with many of them that I met back then uh, because it's, it's the same kind of mindset. Many, many of them coming from entrepreneur backgrounds and they want to build stuff in life, basically. So once we, everyone was at the same place, nobody knew anything about the country, more or less. <laughs> uh, like it was lots of culture clashes, but uh, we managed to cope with it. And I mean, we learned fast. Um, and of course, I mean, uh, it's been really a journey since then. It's a few years ago, but uh, the the shift has really, I mean, you can see it already what's happening today, right? Right. So why would you leave Lazada or Rocket and then go to Insogo? Because, again, very interesting. I don't know how much of that history you know, but the Sivorkon brothers, right? So Paul, John, and Tom, who were running Insogo, probably still at the time, or maybe just Tom was still there. I can't remember. But they were kind of already here, already built a couple of companies in the region. Um, and it was a, maybe this, a similar kind of morale that there was at Lazada, but they were like more local, right? Mm. Uh, so um, back then, it was uh, when I went to Singapore, it was just before the acquisition. Uh, it was called Deal. Uh, so oh. it was before Living Social Got it. Bought, bought everything, right? Um, I actually wanted to see a bit different, right? So as you mentioned, right, so it was my first job. Um, so, I mean, it, it's kind of set a very high expectation and yeah. high standards for my, my first job. Right? It would do. <laughs> so, I mean, working 12 hours a day and this was the first time I was working, right? So I wanted to see something different and um, I realized, okay, let me, let me try something new uh, and just to try to compare and see how life is in other tech startups. Right. Uh, so that's how... Uh, I, I ended up in in back then deal.com.sg in, in Singapore right. uh, during the acquisition phase, basically. And what was the difference, at least in your recollection? Uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, main main difference was uh, the people was a bit different because uh, in in Rocket you had lots of people flying in, you know, and then uh, it creates kind of different. Uh, uh, group settings and and the culture there is very very hungry. Um, in in the company I went to, it was already established uh, for maybe a few years, so it right. was not as new as before, right? Uh, so the, the culture was already set, uh, and yeah, I mean we still worked hard, uh, but um, then I, I realized, okay, um, actually in Lazara it was it was much more happening, and and I decided, okay, so it's. Maybe it's time to to go back. <laughs> and did you go back at like a more senior position? Because you ended up being at Lausanne after that for a few years, right? Yes. So I, I ended up in in Thailand. So before that, I was working in in Indonesia and Philippines, right. uh, and then I I ended up in Thailand, and uh, that's what got me here basically. And and I've been here for the last. Uh, almost three three and a half years, basically. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up uh, um, working very closely with the, with the management level uh, on on different parts. Uh, my last year, I was basically working on the marketplace, uh, and that's when the marketplace model for Lazada was the main focus, basically. So, what did you notice a difference 
I mean, I know, look, when you're working 12, 13, 14 hour days, right, it's really hard to understand what the difference is from one country to another. But I'm just wondering if culturally you notice the difference between the Philippines, Singapore and working in Thailand. And if that sort of informs the way you look at those markets still today. It's a very good question, actually. It's, um, I think for me, as a, since I worked in more or less the same kind of culture uh, of the companies, I didn't manage to see more or less what's outside. Right. Um, more or less in, in the same company, the culture was still the same. Got like it. In Lazada, Philippines, Indonesia, and Thailand, it was very, very similar. Everyone was more or less the same, basically. So a similar company culture. Exactly, exactly. But you've also seen some interesting things too. I mean, Lozada was growing very, very quickly, not just on a GMV size, but just the number of people that were hired and fired. And like the, it was just an incredible, I was in the offices a few different times and it always amazed me just like how fast things seem to be moving then. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. I mean, uh, what we usually say, like uh, three months in Lazada is like uh, six <laughs> months to a year in a, in a normal corporate life, basically. <laughs> but I think this is, this is a great thing because the learnings you got there uh, during these very short time, even if you're only there six months, uh, you learn so much in such a short time. Uh, that is very, very, I mean, that you can use eventually in, in future. And that's what I've seen a lot of people been doing, basically. And so did you, like, what was the management style like there, particularly for somebody at your level? In other words, did you have the freedom and the autonomy inside of Lusada to just be able to get stuff done? Or was there like a chain of command uh, I mean, that you had to was, follow? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a bit both. It depends on, on, on who your direct report is. Uh, but they supported a lot of uh, ideas, right? So that's really what I liked there. Uh, because you, you can come up with ideas and, and you can bounce ideas with your bosses, your management. Uh, if it sounds reasonable, if it sounds good, you can actually execute upon it, right? And this was especially the early days, right? Now I'm not sure how it is, but um, this was something that I really loved uh, and also a lot of my peers really liked because you can really make a change, right? Uh, if you have ideas, you can really act upon it and actually do something that came up from your own mind you know so right. that 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 culture is great and and uh, i think this is what drove me of basically staying there and, and working working my ass off basically <laughs> yeah i'm curious <laughs> i'm curious if you know anybody that worked with you then that's still there and i just wonder if the reason why i'm asking is because you know since there's been a big investment and in practically a takeover by alibaba right and that happened over the past God, it seems so long ago now, but so recently, I mean, but it's really a while ago. It's like almost 12, yeah. 18 months, right? I just wonder if people talk to you about it's more organized now or it's more chaotic now. I'm just wondering if there's a difference or if you hear anything. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think um, I have a lot of friends who, who's, who, who are there actually from like the day one. Right. Um, and uh, I think... For now, I think it's more, I mean, just my opinion uh, might be more organized because uh, you have a lot of new structures from from Alibaba coming in. Um, but more or less like this, I mean, uh, it, it seems to be at least some some improvement in especially the tech side, what I've seen working with them. But uh, in, internally, I, I'm not sure, actually. Uh, right. So you must <laughs> do some interfacing with them. At some level to run your current business, which I think I think it's yes. I think we've reached the point now where it'll be interesting to talk about 
What made you decide to leave? What was the sort of aha moment that you had where you said, not only do I know that I want to build my own business, because I think you established that earlier, but just not only do I know I want to build it, but now I know exactly what I want to do. Yeah, it's um, so I, I was. I mean, uh, one one big reason for me being in Asia was uh, to to build something in the region, right? Uh, there's especially living in in uh, in Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand. You see a lot of a lot of differences, a lot of um, opportunities that that you might not see everywhere else, right? So. Um, I tried to learn as much as possible back then and uh, waited for more or less the, the right opportunity, the right problem arising, right? Right. Um, so a problem I had before even moving to Singapore, uh, to Thailand, was basically uh, that's how we ended up in, in, in our current company right now. So uh, in, in Singapore, for instance, there's lots of... Um, I always had a problem cutting my hair, right? So I have very curly hair. Uh, and and Asian hair are very straight, right? right. So it, it's I always had some problems finding the right hairdressers, uh, but I, I really didn't think of it further than that. So I always had problems, and then like uh, basically around me, I, I didn't know where to go, right? So I didn't think deeper into this. Uh, when I went to to Thailand uh, for a few years, I still had encountered the same problems, right? Uh, then after doing some more research upon it. We saw that this market is actually, I mean, it's 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 a massive market in Southeast Asia um, that we are facing, and and uh, this this exists in in Europe. Uh, so that's how we thought. Okay, uh, maybe there is an opportunity here. Uh, if we're facing this problem, maybe other people are facing this problem. Uh, and then, of course, uh, from the idea to actually quitting, it's it's a very very big decision. Uh, right. It's, I think most of it difficult decision that you do, basically. But, so are there equivalent companies in Europe that you were looking at at the time? And, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about what Goabi does, right? I think that's what you're talking about. Yes. And then what it did, what, like what the original concept was, and, and then we'll talk about it if it's changed at all over time. But I want to talk about mm. what the original concept was, so why you left your job. And then was there at the time at least an equivalent company in Europe or in the United States where you said, I think we need to do this because there's a market gap here, not just in Thailand but in the rest of Asia? Yes. Yeah, so just briefly, uh, so Goabi is basically an online platform for beauty and wellness services, right? So uh, you can book appointments, etc., online instead of offline, right? So that was the main idea, right? Uh, so there were some similar companies in in Europe uh, that doing the same thing. Uh, I'll, I will explain more into this and how we change focus soon. But that's that's how we eventually started, right? So um, okay. in, in Europe there was already a few years ago that existed, right? Uh, but nothing yet in Southeast Asia. Uh, so the main idea was okay. Uh, we have this problem. There is lots of hairdressers, spas, etc. Uh, but there is no really visibility on where they are. I mean, uh, you don't know that there might be a, a, like a hidden star around your corner. Um, why not open up a platform, put these shops online so you have more visibility and you can book it? That was the main idea. And who was supposed to be? So who's the client in this case? At least the original idea was the client. Was the client you, or was the client the salon or the spa, or was it some combination of both? 
It was actually uh, mainly for customers. So me and, and other peers or people who, who try to find these places, right? That was, that was the initial start, right? So you don't know where to go. Uh, you want to get a haircut or spa treatment or anything like this. Uh, you go to our platforms like Agoda, right? And, mm-hmm. and you book it. Uh, and and that, that was it, right? Uh, so this is how we started the first idea. Right. And, yeah, and, and has it, and, has, so <laughs> keep going. Yes, yes, it has changed since then. So uh, what we noticed was uh, in, in, in Europe, um, it's more, I mean, it, it, you do this stuff more for the convenience matter. So uh, um, you, you don't necessarily need an incentive or a benefit by booking it online, right? Uh, we noticed the difference in Southeast Asia. Um, if you do something online, there has to be some incentive or something more valuable to it rather than just book something online uh, because many many clients or many, many customers, they might just call the shop directly or, or right. WhatsApp them or line them. So this is the problem what we what we faced after, I mean, after running for a few months. Um, and then eventually we realized, okay, you, you don't really care. I mean, in, here in Asia, you don't really care about the convenience factor. Uh, but if there is some incentives involved, so for instance, a discount or anything like this, then you get hooked on the platform. So this is our aha moment, more or less, <laughs> because I remember when we when we first signed. So we we launched uh, last year in in June last year, and we were signing shops. It was just around that time when uh, Ensogo shut down in Southeast Asia. So it was like the perfect time for us to enter and basically tell the market, okay, but hey, you don't need a discount. You can list your full prices. Uh, we're never going to ask you for 80% off, etc. You list it on our site and we promote you, right? So this is how we started. Uh, and the listing for these spas and the salons was free to them, right? Yes, exactly. So it's a free marketing platform. We just charge you when we sell. So it's like a small commission and that's it. And it still remains that way? Uh, yes. So now, I mean, we, we've we have a few few different uh, models. Uh, main is, of course, still the transaction fee, and we have also some uh, shops that pay us monthly fees. Uh, but just just when we, I mean, just going back, like uh, when we were signing this, of course, it's very easy to sign the shops. Uh, so we signed, like in uh, maybe in two months, we signed like over 100 partners very aggressively, uh, very quickly, basically. But then we noticed once we launched. I mean, we're not selling that much, right? So we had all these shops uh, that nobody was buying. I mean, it was the same price. Nobody were giving us like any 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 visibility, right? So nobody was booking it. Um, then we realized, okay, but well, something is wrong, right? So we spoke to many many customers, and they were always asking us the same question: uh, Oh, do I get the discount if I book it on your platform? The first thing we said was, no, no, it's the same price. You might get some extra incentives, cashback, etc. cetera, uh, which basically we, we, the answer we got was, ah, okay. Then it was nothing very enthusiastic about the answer, right? Um, then but, that's, sorry. I'm just going to say, I really want to understand why that's the case. So I've got a lot of follow-up on this actually, but you know, the, you said in Europe and probably in the United States as well, the convenience was one of the biggest selling points, right? So people just mm-hmm. didn't want to make the phone call. They'd rather, I presume, 
if I book something on Goambi or a similar platform, I get to see the booking calendar for, or at least the availability for the spa or the salon or, you know, the, the nail salon where I want to book, right? So I get to, without talking to anybody, I can book something, right? Yes. But why is it that that convenience wasn't enough? It's, it's a good question because I also felt that, I mean, first, when we like back in 2012 when uh, I was working for Lazada right so the first comments from many customers were saying basically why would I buy a phone on your site while I can go to the mall and actually buy it there and, and look at it directly right and this was 2012 right uh, now it's it's, it's now so it's like why would I go to a shop <laughs> I don't exactly. need to see it right so it's just the opposite <laughs> So, but it took a lot of a lot of money and a lot of uh, a lot of time, right? right? So, it's I think it's the same kind of mentality right now in 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 the beauty space, right? Uh, luckily, there is many other players in different categories in food, in 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 uh, in cars, and in all different categories that try to educate the customers more and then like getting them used to this, which is which is great. Uh, but it's not going to happen today, right? Uh, so that's how I see uh, Europe. Uh, it's already past that phase. So now it's it's such a common thing that you do it online. So you, you might even get the full price. I mean, you pay, sometimes even in Sweden, we pay a bit extra to right. get it delivered to your place rather than right. you go to the mall and, and queue and this stuff just to get that product, basically. Right, so now that you've figured that out, did you then add discounts to it, and is that has has that been one of the things that has helped you grow faster, for from a transactional yes. standpoint? I think yes. Yeah, so by that time, uh, Ensogo had already closed down, right? Right. Um, so it was really a big opportunity here to to really capture this market, right? But it's a fine line of of going for the Ensogo Ensogo approach and just do discounts and really hurt the shops, right? Uh, and and stay where we are right now. So we spoke to like all these partners that we had. I, I personally met a lot of them and spoke to them, tried to understand the the business and if they worked with Ensogo, okay, how did it work? Why did it not work and this stuff? So we tried to learn as much as possible and we realized, okay, maybe we should give a win-win situation, right? So we give a customer discount so they can get some discount and also benefit the shop in some way, right? So that's when we were thinking of some off-peak discounts, only like certain hours a day, it's a, where, where the shops don't need to necessarily give an 80%, 70%, or 60% discount that they did before. Right. But just, uh, I mean, around 50, 40, 30%, and give it to the customers, and meanwhile, basically, uh, during the busy hours, they, they, keep their, they keep their capacity, right? So this was one of the issues that shops had and that's what we noticed okay uh, maybe we can do something about it and and start exploring this part right. uh, so yeah then after that we we did a lot of these different types of discounts some doing a bit of off-peak certain days uh, and some others has it all day every day right but we're not forcing them on 50 off at least once a day for our our discount is very very simple it's like uh, certain hours a day, you might give a 30, 40, or 50 off, and then other hours, we still sell it on full price because there is still a market where we sell it on full price. But if the customer 
can skip a lunch break for to do their waxing on nail, they can do that to get extra incentives. Basically. Right. So look, I remember when we first started talking about this. I think it was probably a year and a half ago. I think that's what we thought this afternoon when we were chatting back and forth, right? Yes. Now back then there was a company, and my memory may not be good, but I think there was a company called BFAB as well that was starting in Malaysia. Yes. And these were the this was the team that had built a Groupon-style business then, and they were funded quite heavily, actually. Probably, I think, heavily more funded than, than you guys were, even at the time and even now. Yes. And they've kind of pivoted away from this space a little bit, if I, if I read the news properly, right? Yeah. And I'm wondering, what, what are you doing differently than they're doing that makes... So, that Because make, what they've done, I believe, is they've gone the other way, right? So they're going on the B2B side, creating a SaaS product, that's saying, let me install stuff on the salon side to get them to stay with me. Because it always seemed to me that part of the issue would be, you know, I can go look at the salon schedule. I just call them and make an appointment and you kind of get taken out of the loop. Like, how do you prevent that from happening? What's different between what you're doing and what BFAB is doing? Mm, it's, it's a very good question because, yes, they, they had launched just before us. Uh, and uh, and now they pivoted to more the the B two B side. Right. So um, for I think it's 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 a, it's definitely uh, a good good approach to go. Uh, but we we try to explore this with our shops, right? So we we spoke to a lot of shops and really asked them more into okay, uh, do you need a way of managing your your client base? Do you need a way of basically managing your business, right? But still, the main problem here is to get them more customers. Really? Right? Yes. So even even the very popular shops. I mean, so in Thailand, we are working with some of the biggest brands uh, that never even worked online before, right? So we have these major brands that are still giving us a discount. If, if even if it's like certain off-peak discounts and the stuff, they still need some customers on few locations uh, during certain hours, basically. Okay. Uh, so this is what we noticed and. We try to tackle it first to bring them new customers, to bring them more customers. And later on, once, once we notice we're bringing them enough customers, we can plug into our SaaS model. So uh, going back to your question before, right? So we have, we have the uh, transaction-based model, right? We also have uh, the monthly subscriptions because we have already this calendar system, right? So our shops are using our calendar system to block but it's very basic, right? So you can still block your calendar. It's, it's just a basic uh, uh, calendar management. Do much more than that. We are still doing the marketing for them because many of these shops, they don't know how to do marketing. Uh, they, they're not expert in it. They don't have a database for it, right? We have the database. We have our customer base is basically very focused in health and beauty. We know what sells. It's like we're coming in as consultants. So it's like many, many shops, they sometimes ask us, okay, so I want to do some discounts. Can I do 10% on off-peak, for instance? We look at the shop, we look at the brand, we look at what kind of services they sell, and we can give them some indi indi indications on what they should have based on location, brand, and pricing. Right. And we give it to them and basically start pushing them in that way. And do they, do they, it's almost like you are running a little bit of a consulting business. Do they pay you extra for consulting services? Uh, actually, no. Uh, we, we, we get it from, from the transaction because once we start selling a lot, they become very, very happy because compared to what Ensorgo was selling before, right? So Ensorgo, uh, these shops, many of them that we work with today, they tried Ensorgo before, right? right. So they saw it as a quick uh, marketing 
platform, right? They, yeah. they just sell even at cost or below their cost to right. get new customers. Right. That didn't work so well in the end, right? Exactly. Exactly. The, the main problem was retention, right? Right. Uh, so this is where we try to avoid this. We don't want to, I mean, we're not charging massive commissions and we don't ask them for massive discounts. We, give, we, we know more or less what will sell with our customer base and we charge them a small fee for that. Okay. But as you mentioned earlier that there was also a subscription model. That subscription is, again, is that for me or is that for the salons and the spas paying you yes. a monthly subscription? How does that work? So, yeah, so uh, uh, as in the beginning, right, so we were focusing more on uh, customers, right? We want to make it as easy for you as possible to find and book something, right? Right. But since then, we've been pivoting a, a bit and focusing more on the shops, right? Because if the shops are happy, they're giving nice discounts, they're, they're happy getting more customers without seeing each customer as a loss. They will stay with our in our platform, and they will be happy working with us, right? So we right. focus more on the client, on our merchants, uh, and that's where we doing. Uh, that's where we have the subscription fee also, right? So if there's some shops that want to opt for the shop subscription fee, we we work on a marketing package for them more or less uh, that they can run with us, right? So that's that's the two models we're running right now with our with our shops. Got it. And do you want to talk a little bit about? Growth. So now that you've you seem to have at least be comfortable or perfected your model, both on kind of the B two B side, but also on the B two C side, can you talk a little bit about growth? And is your business just in Thailand now, or is it expanding out into the rest of the region to compete head to head with some of the other participants in this market? So for now, we we're in Thailand and we're in around eight to nine cities. Uh, we started in Bangkok, where our major most of our merchants are in Bangkok. Uh, but we also have it in some other cities uh, in, in Thailand. Tell me. Uh, uh, in, uh, so basically the touristic cities, right? So Phuket, Krabi, Chiang Mai. Um, but because we have lots of shops that reaching out to us to, to want to join us, basically, from all these small cities around Thailand. And of course, if, if they, they pass our QC, we put them on our site. So we managed to get a lot of new shops from different locations. But right now, yes, we are in Thailand only. And we've been growing a lot since, actually since we start moving away from just the convenience uh, to more discounts. Um, but we still have, I mean, we still have some shops uh, who's offering full price, for instance, but it's a different, so it, it still sells, uh, but main, majority of our shops is basically that we, we try to push them for either off-peak or some special prices. And yeah, since we launched this almost... Uh, a little bit more than a year ago, we've been growing very, very healthy since then. And now um, we have, I mean, we have some of the big brands that never worked online before, like in Thailand, I'm not sure if you know, like Healthland, uh, we have some other major brands from US, like uh, um, Anastasia, and then some other more in, in beauty space, basically. But, but Getting the first brand was, of course, very, very difficult. But now when we have a bit better brands, it's, it's a bit easier to get more, more of these good guys, basically. So this is interesting. So you work with Healthland. So that means if I want to book like a Thai massage or a foot massage or a full body massage or an oil massage at Healthland, I can just go to Gowabi and I can book something. Is that right? Yes. And, and it's it actually cheaper. It's cheaper, and it doesn't matter which look, because Healthland is one of these companies that has locations everywhere. I'm not sure if it's outside of Bangkok. No, it is, but inside of Bangkok for sure. 
lots of locations, right? Yes. So, yes. so have you integrated with their POS systems as well? In other words, when I book something, they see it pop up on their thing because I know that when I've gone to Healthland in the past, there's somebody with a big book like at the front <laughs> desk. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> writing stuff down. Yes, uh, that's also, imagine this, right? So that's also the, the reason why we don't want to go fully into the uh, SaaS space model. Right. Because you have some of these big guys who are not used to this online at all. And it will take them some time to, to shift them. Uh, and of course, we're going to be there when the shift is ready, right? And we are already bringing them traffic enough to be there. Uh, but yeah, with Healthland, yes, it's a, it's a bit uh, similar to what you're saying. I mean, uh, in the beginning, when we first met them, they were asking if we can send them a fax <laughs> for the bookings. Uh, yeah. Then I was thinking, I don't even know what fax is. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah we, we managed to work it out uh, in different ways, but still online. Uh, so we're not working with the, with the most popular branch, but we have uh, like out of, if they have 10, we have eight of the branches online. We don't want to tackle the most popular ones because we know it's going to be some operational issues. So we just try to, to avoid them for now to make sure our customer experience is, is perfect for now. Right. And they also offer some interesting promotions themselves. So if you buy a book of 10 tickets, you get a little bit of a discount or maybe they give you 12. I can't remember which way it goes, whether they give you more or you just pay less, but either way exactly. you get some kind of discount. So revenues are growing and, you know, you are in, what you say, eight cities, nine cities? I can't remember. Yes, yes. Uh, I think we're approaching nine cities right now, if, if, you call, if you count the small ones also. And do you have plans to expand to other countries or do you just feel like there's so much opportunity in Thailand alone that over the next year or two years, there's just too much business to do here to worry about expanding to other countries? No, of course we are. We're looking uh, looking to expand abroad. It's it's uh, we had it since day one already in our mind. Uh, Thailand, of course, it's a it's a huge market for for beauty in the in the beauty space technically. Uh, so there is lots of things to to grab here in Thailand. Uh, there is a lot of a lot of new shops, a lot of locations. Uh, we still need to educate the customers that they can book. Uh, their beauty or spa online with us in Thailand. Uh, but we're definitely looking for neighboring countries uh, to expand because we, there is a demand there. We, we have even some customers in other countries buying with us, asking us, okay, do you have in, 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 in their own country? We, we tell them, okay, not yet, but soon, basically. So the demand is there. Um, it's just about timing when to go and how to do it because, of course, it's going to be expensive. Right, so we're, you know, expanding internally, obviously, or domestically is, is expensive, but expanding internationally is even more expensive. Building a sort of similar team, you know, localizing the technology that you've built, whether it's language or just cultural pricing and other things that require localization. How, how do you fund that? In other words, are you cash flow positive? Are you profitable? What is the roadmap for the economics of the business? which have always, to me, seemed quite um, challenging. Yes, so um, since, since day one, uh, we, we started to charge commission uh, once we officially launched, right? So we, we had a few shops uh, that we, we gave on, on free trials, etc. But, but once we officially launched, we start already charging commission to our shops, right? right. Um, and this is very, very important because once a shop is used to free, 
once you start charging commission, they yeah. will leave you. And Absolutely. this is what we noticed. Some of the shops, once they realize, oh, okay, I need to pay you guys. Okay, but I don't want to be here anymore. So <laughs> uh, since then, okay, we launched only with with uh, with the commission, right? Uh, so we've been we've been basically try to control our cash. So of course. Uh, before, so we, we fundraised and we, we raised our uh, last round from 500 tuk-tuks. Uh, so, but before that, uh, it was self self run. Basically, it was it was self funded. Um, you we, angel you angel funded a little bit though, no? Yes, exactly. So me, some friends, um, who we invested a bit to try to make this happen, right? And um, of course, cash was was always a problem. So we really tried to find ways where we can grow the business and still make some money out of it without spending too much, right? right. Because I mean, I'm used from my background that we can spend a lot and get a lot of customers, but it's going to be expensive. Right. Um, so from day one, we already learned, okay, how can we, how can we spend a little bit but still get customers, right? Uh, so we found some ways. Um, we were already charging our, our, our shops, and now we still – our unit economics is very, very healthy. I mean, we either break even on the first or second booking where our customer make because uh, we're not going aggressive with our own discounts. We try to control our, our marketing channel. So it's, it's still controlled because we, we don't have the massive funding that you can really play around with, right? So we were against the wall once. Uh, we learned the hard way, more or less, how I, uh, and then now we just try to make sense out of everything, right? So even before we, 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 we raised our, our last round, we were controlling our cash. I mean, we were not even buying T-shirts for our team uh, <laughs> because with, the, with the Goabi logo. We, we said, okay, this is just a waste of money. We don't need, we don't need to start up T-shirts. You know? yep, <laughs> even in the beginning, uh, we were doing our customer service ourselves. So it was me and my co-founder. Uh, we were having a few hundred bookings a month, and we were doing the customer service. In Thai, so we had to learn the Thai language, like Thai words for for uh, hours, times, and and everything like this, <laughs> and just try to make sure the operation went well. Um, so we've been very very stingy with with our cash, and I think that's because we we had to learn the hard way, I would say, uh, which is very interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned that that um, your backs were up against the wall, which is new information to me. I presume that means that you felt like you were just going to run out of operating cash, right? Yes, yes, of so course. What was, that, what was that like? And in between that time, and uh, you said you were funded by 500 tuk-tuks, which is interesting as well, because they don't generally invest that much money, right? They're not mm. investing $2 million, you know, $1 million. They're investing more in the high hundred thousands kind of range right so what does that mean for the business going forward like what's the next what's your idea what have you learned about funding and what's the next round going to look like you think so uh, yes when we were like when we were against the wall right so we still have very little money running right our company was growing uh, so our traction was still growing month on month. It was happening, right? So we saw the demand. It's it's really something that people need and, and they still book it. Uh, but we didn't have money to run it more or less. So that's why in the end it was only me and my co-founder doing like everything from marketing, HR and customer service because we had to run the business uh, at at zero cost. Right. Uh, and we were still making some money, right? So we could we could survive um, just by by running it like ourselves. 
Uh, and that already back then we, we realized, okay, so if we have a little bit of money, how do we spend it in the right channels, right? And this is what we learned, right? So once we raised the funding, we really learned how to optimize, optimize our money and, and try to spend it very smart as possible, right? Uh, and since then, uh, since we've been raising, since we raised since then, and we start actually spending some money in marketing in our own channels where we know it works, it's been just been growing since then, basically. So it was, it was good learning once we were facing the critical situation. Okay, we, we need to stay alone. We need to do it ourselves and, and wait to the right opportunity. And also that, that time, our traction was very solid, uh, so the company was growing with no extra cost. So it was a very nice, ni nice numbers, of course. Uh, and now it's a different story. So now, yeah, of course, um, we, we're fund we, we're gonna fundraise again soon um, to look. I mean, to focus more on our product and, and and really build a proper system, proper product, because now it's more or less for getting more customers. You know, get the word out. Right. So can you tell me a little bit more in detail about like what exactly you learned about which channels to use and how that sort of cash conservation led you to, I, I hate this term, but people use it like the growth hacking, right? Like where did you go to find the optimal way to get more clients with spending the least amount of money? So I think one, one major thing was uh, we were thinking, okay, so where is where's our customers, right? So right. where's our potential customers? So answer to that is very easy. They're actually at the shops, right? So everyone that we want is actually at our spa shops or salons or whatever. Uh, so we realize, okay, so actually we need to be there. So there's no point spending money in, in Facebook or, or Instagram, but the customers is actually there. We need to go and, and get them. So we, we partner up with some of the shops and actually had presence offline, right? So if you went to one of these shops, you could see a massive Gawabi banner with, uh, with uh, some, some nice wording, some nice graphics, and basically telling them, okay, hey, you can actually book your next treatment online, this shop, right? So that was one of our growth hacks that we realized. And, and at that time, it was very, very uh, efficient because mm. it, was, it was more or less cheap, uh, free for us. And uh, we got lots of customers and we educated the market more or less. Yeah, that, that's really interesting actually. <laughs> so, and what did you learn about the funding? In other words, I, a lot of startups, right, don't understand how the funding process works and they also, they, they fail when they try to go out and raise money because they're looking in the wrong places, they get bad investors. Like what was that process like for you and for your team? Like why, why did you end up with 500 tuk-tuks as opposed to any of the other sort of multitude of micro funds in, in Southeast Asia? So, yes, it's a good question because when, when we started fundraising, it was, I mean, uh, we fundraised for a long time, right? So uh, it was already some competition in other regions. So it was a bit difficult for us raising some, some money. Um, because why, they, why do you think? Because we just started, right? So our traction was very, very little. Uh, it was no... Um, it was no, no really a business because the numbers were not there. We only had a few months of runway, right? Uh, and you had already, like you mentioned, BFAB running uh, in, in other countries. We had some other startups. So they wanted to wait and see what's going to happen with us. Uh, so that was the main thing, right? So if, I mean, 
what I learned is definitely if, if you're planning to fundraise and you think it's going to take three months, hmm. uh, probably it's going to take six months or eight months, you know? Yes. So yes. <laughs> it definitely takes longer time than expected and, and you really need to, I mean, once we secured our last funding, I was already planning who I'm going to reach out to our next fund and already preparing the leads and this stuff. So it, it definitely takes much longer time. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the fundraising was, uh, was, it was much more difficult than, than, than thought. I mean, you can read about it in, in tech in Asia, you see lots of startups getting funded. So my first approach was, ah, okay, maybe, maybe it's easier uh, no, because it's I not, see it's not <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which I was completely wrong. <laughs> right. It's really hard actually. It's so, super good. and you were happy with the valuation that you received and I'm curious you know, we did a survey actually on Asia Tech Podcast, and one of the things we surveyed was who is the best venture capitalist in Southeast Asia. And, you know, surprising to me that 500, not the Tuk Tuk business itself, but the 500 name was voted at least in the top three, I think maybe the top one the last time I checked. But I'm just wondering. From your experience ending up with them as your funding mechanism, mm. what was your experience with? them post-funding? In other words, have what, what's the sort of assistance that they give you, particularly because they're local, in sourcing new business and in, you know, growth hacking and all the other things that sort of go along with learning how to grow a business? Mm. Uh, with 500, it was actually, it was very um, straight conversation with them. I mean, if they didn't like what, what we had back then, I mean, we were speaking to them for a few times, right? right. Even when we just launched they told us, okay, but this is uh, this is not what we need. I mean, you need to reach this and that. So they more or less helped us, giving us the, the guidelines. Okay, if you becoming a, a fundable startup, you need to have X amount of traction, X amount of revenues, etc. Right. So it, they were actually very helpful in that sense. So it, for us, it gave us some some goals, right? So okay, we need to reach this, we need to reach that, and then we can start talking to them again, right? So at least. Uh, they were very helpful in this sense, um, and um, as as a 500 tuk tuk as a whole, I think it, it's great because our business right now, for this round, was perfect because we are in Thailand focused, right? Uh, so they have really the the they understand the market, they understand the need, what is needed in Thailand. So for us, it was a perfect combination. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it took longer than than what we thought is gonna take, right? So. <laughs> Uh, we've been, we, we were talking to them for, for many, many times and, and we had to improve our numbers. We had to definitely fight to get where we are at that time, basically. So what's your view now on your next round? In other words, if you're, can you talk a little bit about the growth statistics just so people that, people that are listening can get a better understanding for how fast you're growing, whether it's month on month or year on year or whatever statistic you'd like to give. I'm just curious what it is because then I want to talk about mm. what do you think your next funding round looks like and how much money would you want to raise? Just because the Tuk Tuk's round is probably not going to be your biggest round. It's probably going to be your smallest round. And I'm just curious what you think the next stage looks like just based on all the things you've learned. Yeah, so uh, since, I mean, since uh, January this year, we've been growing uh, more or less 20 to 20 to 30 percent every month, right? Every month. Uh, so it's uh, the number has been very, very interesting. So every month we haven't had any month where we were even same or le uh, less than previous month. So we've been growing very, very steady since January. Okay. Uh, so, so the numbers more or less here speaks for ourselves, right? But there's of course a lot of other things into it, right? So yes, now. Um, 
this gave us a big boost uh, in our sales. Of course, I mean, the last funding, it gave us a lot of boost uh, and that helped us a lot achieving our numbers. Uh, is, for, that, for the, is that sustainable, you think? You think that's sustainable growth? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. So uh, our unit economics has been very, very healthy, right? So uh, our our repurchase rate, uh, as I mentioned, like always, either on the second or first or second booking, we already make money from this customer. So it's 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 a very, very healthy numbers. We're not just spending like crazy to get customer who just buy one time, right? So this is where we learned before, and this is why we try to implement it to grow fast, but also in a healthy way. Uh, so that numbers has been good in that sense, right? Okay. Uh, so yeah, now I mean, of course, we're raising a bigger round. Um, some, some, I mean, from probably maybe uh, two or uh, like combination of few investors, uh, which will be the next round, which hopefully will be next year. Uh, but yeah, it's it's gonna be. It's gonna, of course it's gonna take time again, but uh, but our numbers can back up what we have basically. So do you feel like this is going to be an easier capital raise just because of the, the growth that you've seen? And have you learned anything else from sort of other startups or other VCs or even the 500 team that you just continue to apply for growth? I think uh, it's definitely not going to be easier <laughs> because it's also a bigger ticket. So it's not going to be easier. Uh, I would even guess it might be even more difficult uh, because Usually, okay, if you raise the first round, the second round might be even more difficult, right? Um, but, I mean, hopefully our, our numbers will, will support what we're saying. Um, I mean, what we learned from, from yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned, right, so what we learned is basically you already need to start preparing your, your fundraising. I mean, especially as a CEO of the company, uh, once you, you signed your first term sheet and, and got the first money, uh, you should already start planning for the right. next round and, and you need to already plan your runway and, and prepare it six months in advance for sure. <laughs> so I guess my last question on the funding side and then I'll let you go, but I, I think this is one of the most interesting things that's happened over the past year is the onset of initial coin offerings, particularly for businesses that have revenue, that have growing revenue, um, and that aren't just a concept, right? So your business is no longer a concept. It's a, it's a running and going concern. So presuming that you know what an ICO is, your business, because it's building its own ecosystem, it's transactional in nature, would seem to be well set up or well suited for having its own currency or at least sharing <laughs> a digital currency with somebody else. And, you know, the ICOs have gone through sort of what I'll call the Gartner hype cycle where, you know, six months ago, you could raise, you know, $100 million and nobody blinked an eye. Mm -hmm. And now people have stopped doing that, right? So I had a conversation today with another startup about this. It's more like raising in sort of the five to seven and a half million dollar range. But that gives you leverage then to continue building out your ecosystem and infrastructure. And I'm wondering if you have considered that as a funding mechanism, even in conjunction with a more traditional venture capital raise. Mm. It's a very interesting. Uh, we're we're actually like uh, joking more or less about it to to build our own currency, but this is uh, definitely uh, something. I mean, it's the, the uh, we have like more or less uh, our cashback that we call a currency, but it's definitely something different level as as the ICO. Right. Um, 
we're not looking into that for now. I mean, it's, it's a bit different uh, from our backgrounds and experiences. Uh, so it's, I don't think that that will be very, very applicable in, in our sense. Okay. I, I mean, I, frankly, it's, it's, I, it's, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's very interesting because, I mean, the, the market, it's very, I mean, that's what's booming right now. Uh, but, yeah, we're in a more traditional way, and that's, I think, where we want to stay for now at least. Okay. I mean, to be fair, I don't think just because the market is doing it or everybody in the market's doing it or it feels like everybody's doing it that it's necessarily yeah. the right thing to do, but just because you're building a transactional business where you're connecting, you know, you're doing B2B work, you're doing B2C work as well, and you're, you're building an infrastructure that's based on software and installation of, you know, tech on that two-sided market, it just seemed like an interesting thing to think about, but maybe you'll think about that more going forward. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 a good idea. I mean, my 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 CTO, he's uh, he wants to build something like that, but uh, now we're focusing on on the main traditional way of, of doing the business. Okay, look, this has been a really interesting conversation for me. I've learned a lot, and I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for your time. Thank um, you. You're welcome. And is there what's the best place for people to reach you? You want to say the website is what? Um, how, how do people find your business? What's the best way for them to find it? Uh, it's either our website, uh, goabi.com, or, or uh, our application on iOS or Android. Okay, so you do so have a mobile application as well. You can do mobile bookings too. Yes, exactly. Okay. It's mobile first. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Samir, thank you very much for your time. Thank I, you so I much, I really Michael. appreciate it. Hopefully you'll come back in a few months and, and let us know more about Progress. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.